0: You are listening to The Last Aid Station on Mountain Bike Radio, your source of off-road news and highlights. This episode is brought to you by the Wausau 24. It's a 6, 12, and 24-hour mountain bike race on July 30th to 31st at Nine Mile Forest in Wausau, Wisconsin. You can head over to wausau24.com, that's number 24, so wausau24.com for more information. They are offering up... 15% 15% off for listeners. You only have a few days left. It's good until July 15th. If you type in the code JULY15 at registration, you get 15% off. I can vouch for the WASA 24 from a lot of experience. I've raced in the 6-hour category, 12-hour category, the 24-hour category, both in solo and team It's a great experience. It never fails to deliver. The course is good. The vibe is great. And it's just an all-around great experience. And the number of people coming back every year, you see friends, you see people you've raced several years ago. It's just a great all-around experience. And um, I'm going back again this year. So I would recommend it. Head over to wasa24.com. Get signed up. Use the code JULY15. Get yourself 15% off. And I will see you there. This is The Last age Station with Steve and Mark for
1: another episode full of race coverage, a little bit of news and some discussion. What's going on, Mark?
2: Nothing's going on with you. Um, by seeing your intra web feeds, your social media, <laughs> um, you've had quite the eventful two or three weeks.
1: Yeah, it's uh, been an interesting couple of weeks with, with a uh, couple of visits to urgent care and, uh. Trying to keep things interesting.
2: Keeping those doctors, uh, on track, on track for their Caribbean vacations. Yeah, season. exactly. <laughs> so, uh, listeners, Steve has had an eventful couple weeks. Um, Steve, what injuries have you sustained in the last couple weeks?
1: Well, I stuck a chain ring through my shin and, uh, you should wash those out right away as that, uh, turned into an infection with a pretty swollen leg and, uh, in that same incident, incident, apparently I fell into poison ivy when I did fall and stick the chain ring through my legs. So, and then, uh, not even a week later, a couple of days before the Lutzen, I was up messing with a kayak over the top of my truck and fell and broke a rib, which I, uh, didn't realize was broken until after I rode the Lutzen and, uh, was hurt really bad. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, there should be a special division for that, um, yeah. Injury, it, lung injury, yeah. something.
1: Yeah. I should have known because it was some pretty, pretty severe pain. And my wife had to help me kind of sit up out of bed the next couple of mornings, even the morning of the, the race. But I just figured oh, I must have pulled something. I don't know. You know what I mean? But I got a couple of jolts and I should have known that maybe something might have been broke since there was no bruise and it hurt like that. But I don't know, once I was when I was riding on my bike, leaning over forward and everything, it was it was OK until I started hitting bumps in the trail. OK.
2: Well, luckily, Luton isn't too bumpy, shreddy kind of No, there's duck. a lot of gravel. It's, st- it's still 100 miles.
1: Yeah, a lot of gravel. There's a lot of ATV trails, and there is, there are some sections of trails that are pretty bumpy. And okay. the first one that's like 15, 18 miles in, I, I started getting a few jolts there. And then toward the end of the race, I was kind of questioned. I'm like, I think I might have a broken rib. <laughs> but... <laughs> <laughs> and, and the final
2: final miles of the race. I probably shouldn't have done this.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then once it was over, when I got off my bike at the end, I, I was standing around with my buddies and my dad and family and stuff and every time I'd laugh it just cringed in pain and I was like, Oh boy, we're going to urgent care when I get home.
2: Yeah. They don't do anything for for 'em anyways. So No, they don't. Yeah. It's it's pretty much just kinda you end up self splinting it when you sleep and you Yeah, it's <laughs> It's painful, and it's. Um, are you getting over it now? It's usually what two and a half, three weeks before you really. Ah, uh,
1: today was actually pretty painful. Okay. It was actually hurt more today than it did the last few days. I'm, I'm about a week and a half in. Okay. So. So. I probably cracked it when be- I, mean, I initially, and then you know I probably finished it off by riding hundred miles
2: on it. Right. So I'm. Um, so for all the listeners, we're going to try to be covering a whole bunch of different stuff today. Um, we've got a little bit of racing for a little bit of all kinds of racing we've got a little bit of um bike packing we've got some world xc and you really can't put those more at opposite ends of the spectrum and than, than those exist um, but also have a little bit of news in the industry so to speak and then um the majority of our stuff will actually be your endurance mountain bike race highlights and we actually have quite a bit to go over so we're really looking forward to doing some of that but um if I sound a little bit um, jacked up, um, speedy, um, it's because I've been experimenting recently with some uh, nutrition. <laughs> I was getting nervous um, Creating my own nutrition bars, and you know, you, you can find them anywhere. There's lots of books out there for doing that kind of thing. But I've also been experimenting not only with making the nutrition bars, you know, your own home bake, self bake, sport bar kind of granola bar kind of thing, but I've been adding. Um, espresso and trying to get that just right. It tasted great today, but then when I actually redid the calculation, it tasted a little strong. I realized I doubled the dose of espresso, so I'm jacked up on probably the equivalent of five espressos at this point, and feeling feeling like a ferret on crack, honestly. Um, <laughs> and I swear I can hear my hair growing. Um, but uh, I'm going to put some of those uh, recipes into the show notes because they're actually coming out really well. Um they're very natural, you know, they got all the whole grains and things like that. And I, I'm really liking where they're, where they're going. Certainly a lot better than the gels and some of the other stuff that I've been dealing with, at least from my perspective, at least I'm being able to digest it a little bit better. So is it your recipe or something you found? Yeah. Well, it was something I found and then I kind of like added a few things. Tweaked and it. Took, yeah. Tweaked it. Exactly.
1: Extra espresso.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, that was the one mistake I made. Um thinking that, I needed to, some of that would bake off. It actually doesn't bake off at all. It actually gets more concentrated. I'm, oh, st- nice. I'm still learning. I'm still learning. I'm still learning, but a little bit wired at this point. Um, but
1: Time to hand you a mic at the finish line. You know,
2: <laughs> yeah, I could, I could cover two races at this point. So uh, In different states. Yeah, different states. So why don't we start off with a little bit of news? We're recording this kind of just after the World Championships of... Um, traditional XC or XCO or what they call cross-country Olympic distance, the big World Cup type guys. Um, and so Nino, Nino Schurter has won his fifth world championship title. Um, he ties uh, Saucer, I believe, for that. And then Annika Longbad, who in the past has always been a endurance specialist, actually wins the XC title for the first time. She's a three-time past UCI World Marathon champion. Um, if you haven't had a chance to watch some of that coverage, you can actually go to Red TV. I believe that's the address, um, and watch a replay of the whole race. Red Bull has really stepped up their game this year in covering the World Cup of uh, mountain biking, and you can actually go back and watch the rest of the season also. But some really good racing at the World Championships this year. Oh, yeah. Lots of, lots of attacks gets- and stuff. What's that?
1: My wife gets nervous with that uh, because my kids will turn the Red Bull TV on oh. on the, the Apple TV and watch the uh, the Rampage stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah my six-year-old uh, thinks it's great. My wife just gets a little nervous about that. <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah, there's some sports on on Red Bull that um, uh, defy explanation how someone even came up with that idea. Uh, yeah. In other industry news. Andy Jones, who really has been, at least on the athletic side of things, the face of SRAM. And as a big, um, he's really there, or was, I'm sorry, their athletic, the person that spoke for the athletes, um, talked to the athletes, kind of had was the relationship guy, has been let go by SRAM. And it's caused a big hubbub, especially among the athletes that interact with him on the off-road side for SRAM. Many athletes have actually had actually gone to SRAM after working with other um, component manufacturers, and because of Andy Jones, and um, I'm sure he's going to find something else in the industry. He's very well respected, um, but it it sucks to see you know SRAM having let him go. Of course, we don't know the specifics and all that stuff, but it's a big industry thing, um, especially for many of our listeners who maybe have seen Andy at some of the bigger. Um, mountain bike races, um, both traditional and endurance. Um, he's always there, but the, the big, big events, pro XCT and sea otter and things like that. And he's the reason that many switched over to, um, SRAM to begin with is a great guy, always was great face to face, knew what the athletes needed, knew what the athletes wanted and was also a very nice guy in that he would actually work with competition, um, athletes that are sponsored by their primary competition and actually assist them in getting whatever they would need so the athletes could continue to race or train and things like that really sucks to see him go from SRAM but like I said he's got quite a reputation and I'm sure you'll see him move on in the industry to something maybe even bigger and better so um Tour Divide has finished or at least for some of the racers there are still some racers out there on course started the first week of June and now we're 30 days in or so, and you've got many of the many people still finishing it. more the people that have toured it, um, but um, in the tour divide this year, 2,700 miles, 200,000 feet of climbing, um, with a grand apart.
0: <laughs> Take early. it, yeah,
2: it's it. I mean, at that point, why even keep track? Um, but Mike Hall. Um, who is well-known in endurance circles for his wins nearly everywhere and anywhere. He raced the uh, race around the world. He's won uh, the Trans-America, um, the Trans Am. Um, he has done. He's won the Tour Divide in past years and was actually targeting this year to do the Tour Divide to try to break the record. In the years that he's done very well in the Tour Divide, they've had um, some reroutes and things, and so they weren't official course records. Last year, of course, um, with that three-up kind of sprint to the finish, they had set a new record, and now they were looking to see if maybe that record could be broken, and uh, Mike Hall, who uh, hails from the UK, did just that. Now, Mike Hall is the guy that won the Trans Am last year, and if you've seen the the documentary Inspired to Ride, he's the guy that does extremely well in that race, but he um, employs a different strategy because many people look at him as to be the guy to figure out the strategies and ta- they tailor their pace after him. He employs different strategies. Occasionally, he'll actually leave behind the group and then pass them, you know, hoping to gain an advantage by passing them when they're sleeping or passing people at a speed that they can't maintain. Um, this year, he, he led it straight off the front, right from the gun. Short portion of Kennedy was the first one into the continental United States through the first half of Montana before Josh Cato, who won this event last year, was following him very closely. Now, Cato would actually end up sustaining an injury with an encounter with a pickup truck and would end up dropping out of the race. But behind Cato was Chris Plesko, who is sponsored by Last Aid Station Friends um, 9250. And Plesco kept it relatively conservative at the start, remained within striking distance for the first week. But Hall, who is notorious for minimizing his sleep, maximizing his on-bike time, would later relate that he felt it was a nearly perfect run and not one that he regretted any lost time. He felt that in past attempts at the tour divide record that he has always felt there were periods where he was riding too slowly, or he was taking too much time off the bike or not maximizing his time on the bike. But he felt that this was nearly a perfect run. um, And he can't imagine a better year for the record with the exception of some early race rains while they were still in Canada. Um, But he left, left most of it out on the trail. He hit Antelope Wells, New Mexico border crossing in 13 days 22 hours and 51 seconds, or 51 minutes, and he's the first person to go under two weeks and averaging just a hair under 200 miles per day, and that's likely more than 200 miles if you would include some of the off-course stuff that you have to do when you're self-supported, like driving off course to get groceries or driving off course to find a place to sleep or things like that, but ended up averaging... Just official course distance of all over 197 miles per day. Chris Pleska would finish just over a day later for second, and remarkably, he finished on a single speed. He shattered his own single speed tour divide record by over four days. Dang! Um, is there a lot of
1: is there some hike a bike then with with the single speed? Often,
2: or? well, no. Um, a lot of it is is relatively. It's relatively graded road. Um, some, okay. of stuff, some of the stuff that ends up being hike-a-bike is due to snow um, across some of the elevations that perhaps oh, okay. in some years don't have. It never clears. Um, okay. Third would be a gentleman's time with Kevin Jacobson and Sophie Sahili of France in just over 16 days. They would tie right across the line after they'd ridden several of the days prior to the finish together. Guy Martin, uh, big celebrity racing this year um, from MotoGP and motorcycle racing fame, finished in just over 18 days. Said it was the hardest thing he'd ever done by far, and with the race now well over 22, 24 days old, um, there are still plenty of racers still in course. You know, we're approaching 30 days at this point, but there's still some folks out there looking to just finish it um, at a touring pace, and looks like uh, it's going to have a large number of finishers this year seems like the weather has really cooperated well for many on the course um it looks like jackie Bernardi will win or has won the women's race in just under 20 days 19 days 22 23 hours somewhere around there um and uh like i said lots of uh, women racers are still on course to figure out like who else um did well in other news, kind of while I was searching to find the news on the Tour Divide, I saw Mike Hall's bike set up, trying to figure out what everything was going on with that. Um, and he was running a mixture of old school and new school components. Um, he was riding a pivotless hardtail, which is actually the same frame that uh, Gordon Wadsworth races in uh, the NUE series. Um, he was riding XTR DI2 components, so actually raced on electronic components in the Tour Divide. Carbon wheels from Reynolds, uh, which were, he was actually using enduro wheels for durability, but they were carbon. They're 28 millimeters wide, getting that big, wide platform. Um, very minimal, actually a very sparse backpack setup, or as Rich Dillon would call it, a minimalist homeless man in a hobo cycling contest. <laughs> Definitely doing that. Um He was matched with the old-school components, like he was using a brook saddle and standard mountain bars, no aero bars at all, which you would often see on the Tour de You actually see some aero bars. He elected not to use any of that. Um, So he elected a very sparse technology setup. He only used a spot tracker and a GPS. He didn't track other racers on the course while he was racing. Um, Very minimal cell phone usage, didn't do a whole lot of that, didn't worry about others. He was out there for himself to see how fast he could push it. And push it he did under 14 days. It's to me absolutely ridiculous. So, um, so that's, that's what happened at the Tour Divide. Yeah. Um, so big congratulations to him. Uh, in other ultra endurance racing news, at the Trans Am race, uh, which is the road equivalent of the Tour Divide, it stretches from Astoria, Oregon, to Yorktown, Virginia. Now, generally, we're not going to cover that kind of stuff on the last aid station, but I wanted to mention it because Lael Wilcox, who holds the women's record in the Tour Divide, chased leader Sarah Hammond and Stefan to strike for a large portion of the race after things had settled down, seating over 150 miles to the leaders in the first third of the race. She moved into second when Hammond had some navigational issues. Then just in the foothills of Virginia, just a day's ride from the finish, was passed by Strike going in the opposite direction, and he had been having some increasing problems with his GPS. Strike would turn around, realizing it was error, and the two would race together for several hours, alternatively each pushing the pace, unable to drop the other at various points of the race. Strike would then ask Wilcox, as they approached 100 miles to go, if she wanted to ride into the finish together, creating a co-ownership of the title in 2016. Wilcox's answer? No, this is a race. And before again trading surges with uh, Strike, um, Wilcox would finally get a gap that Strike could not answer. Wilcox would push that gap out even further in the closing miles to win by over two hours in a time of 18 days, 10 minutes, the fastest time ever ridden on the Trans Am for a woman. The first American winner the fastest American winner in the three or four-year history. And so Leo Wilcox, who last year had a bit of a uh, – she got a heck of a name for herself because she raced the Grand Depart, um, did, was the first woman in the Tour Divide to finish, and then three weeks turned around and said, I can do it faster, and went and did an ITT, an individual time trial of the Tour Divide, again, just three weeks after finishing the tour divide and set another Holy record. Smokes. So, uh, Lil Wilcox, anyhow, wins the trans am race. And I know a lot of people that are into the bikepacking thing, um, road or, or off road follow Lale And, uh, but anyhow, she wins the trans am race this year. Um, pretty impressive, honestly.
1: Uh, yeah. I, I thought I saw something about that. Uh, the dialogue there about this is a race uh, yeah. out on post or something. So, yeah. So,
2: um, I just, it, it's astonishing to me. So 4,400 miles self-supported from West coast to East coast. I'm not sure how much climbing it is. I'm sure it's enormous amount, but in addition to that, she was averaging almost 280 miles a day. Um, sucks. <laughs> uh, for eight, almost three weeks. So uh, pretty impressive. Um Before we get into the, all the different races and things that are going on. The one race that I will not be covering this week is the Bailey Hundo. Now, the Bailey Hundo actually occurred a couple weeks ago. It actually occurred on the same day as the Lumberjack race in the NUE series. But the Bailey Hundo this year, um, a bit of a catastrophe as far as the leaders go. Um, I started hearing a buzz about what was going on in the race far earlier than I should have about the race finishing given the time distance between me and Colorado, initially hearing of a large portion of the front of the field being directed off course by a course marshal. Um, Now, we here at the last station, we don't want to just read results, and it seemed like everybody there at the race was having their own misadventure of some sort or other. Only 52 riders officially finished the 100-mile course after 160 entrants, Additionally, not only do we have the course issues, there was also some environmental issues with uh, extreme heat uh, that was not predicted for the day. Um, I don't know what to say. I can't find stories other than dismal ones affected by the course issues, including NUE series leader Dylan Johnson, Josh Tostado, Dan Durland, Nick Gold, Taylor Ledeen, Ian Spivak, and a host of others. Now, some of these top contenders withdrew, after being found so far off course and including the heat, they were worried about fueling and hydration strategies and things like that. A few, including Ledeen and Spivak, um, finished it, though it's hard to say what their deficits would have been otherwise. Um, many on the site said it was, there was a lot of chaos on the course. It looked like a bomb went off in the front half of the field with riders retracing routes to backtrack to get back on course. Other riders, Perhaps unknowingly shortcutting the course. Um, I don't want to be inaccurate with how things transpired, and even though the result will count for the NUE, it may affect results in the overall s- series potentially. It's really difficult for me to report on a race that have these kind of events imploding yeah, it's the race from within. And so I'm I'm, I'm just going to not. I mean, the race the race results are out there for anyone who wants to search for them on the internet. They're out there, but I I have no idea how those races transpired and you know with big time deficits and differences between the leaders in all the different categories um it's just really difficult for me to report on and so that's why we won't be reporting on how things went down at the bailey hundo yeah i think the i mean
1: i i didn't hear about it you were you're telling me about it but the 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 bigger thing with that is is there might be some people that are going
2: to have to pick up another race now right Right. Yeah. And it, and it really stinks for the guys out on the, that
1: that's really the news
2: there, the West coast because they don't have as many to choose from as the guys on the East coast necessarily. Um, you know, they, sometimes the four that are out there, um, when you include cascades and things like that, um, uh, you know, you just, I don't know how it's going to affect the results in the end. Um, but that's too bad. Yeah, it's too bad. So, the Iron Mountain 100K. Now, there are several races across the country that hold that name. Um, but this is one that takes place in Damascus, Virginia. And it's a legendary race here in the Southeast and Mid-Atlantic regions. And a big one on the Endurance Calendar. It's put on by Chris Scott and the Shenandoah Mountain Touring Group. And this race takes place in South Central-ish Virginia or Western Virginia. Um, right at the corner of where Virginia Uh, Tennessee and North Carolina all come together. and This race is on some raw, old-school mountain bike courses over some very rugged terrain. Rudy and Rocky is the easiest way to describe it, but it's a lot more than that also. This race is often a race for Virginia racers from the area to race against Pisgah racers, who often ride on very similar terrain, versus the occasional Pennsylvania racers coming down from the Michaud and Rothrock areas, who raced on very similar edgy, rocky um, mountain bike trails. This race takes a very grassroots feel, and it's not the big scale productions of some other Chris Scott races, like Shenandoah uh, 100 or Wilderness 101, though Chris Scott does not cheat the riders out on some great support throughout the race, um, and putting all those little details to put on a great race on some very challenging terrain. Now in the men's race, A neutral rollout onto the Virginia Creeper Creeper Trail, which is kind of a rail trail, um, brought the riders to the first section of single track and the climbs to the top of the ridgeline. Now, the trail they entered um, consisted of a very rocky, washed-out trail, climbed for several steep pitches that took the riders nearly 60 minutes to navigate the entire climb. Now, hitting that climb first was Chris Beck, trying to make a little bit of a statement who was followed quickly by Nick Bragg, Thomas Turner, Sam Kerber and Chris Trees. Once on the top of the ridgeline, the rolling trail included some tight turns, some rocky ridgeline riding before eventually reaching aid station number one, where the leaders have been reduced down to just three Kerber, Turner, and Trees. Now, this group will be shown to be the big selection for the men's race as they continue to ride together through the next 20 miles of trail. Forest Roads, and even a little bit of pavement. It was on one of these technical trails that Kerber began pushing the pace as each rider picked the best line on the complicated trails. In an instant, Turner was off his bike to fix a drop chain that left him dropped off the back of that group. Turner would chase back for several miles, finally reeling in a steady rolling Chris Treese, who had been dropped by Kerber, and Kerber was now further up the trail. Trees and Turner would put some go through the time checks, but they were showing that Kerber was putting in some padding into that gap, and Turner decided it was now or never, and put in a big effort to try to chase back, putting trees on the back foot, and headed off in front of, of trees, dropping him in the process, in search of Kerber. With gaps dropping with every time check he received, Turner was optimistic in getting a chance to finally see Kerber before the finish, but it was not meant to be for Turner, who would follow Corber into the finish line down by less than a few minutes with Therese just behind completing the podium. In the women's race, inside the top 15 of all racers to the top of that first big technical climb was Megan Corral of rare disease cycling. But with Ann Pike chasing her for most of the day, it would take consistent racing to remain out in front. Megan Corral would race with a combination of strong climbing and the abilities to race downhill, very well shown in previous weeks where she had won the Pisgah Enduro. A little waxing and waning on that time gap through the midpoint aid stations left the race a little bit up in the air until a growing time gap on the final portions put Corral likely too far out in front to be caught late in the race. Megan Corral of rare disease cycling takes the win over Ann Pike, again showing some Big improvements from Ann this year over an already consistent podium finisher in past seasons. So what have you got for the Check 100? Yeah, the Shawabagun 100. Yeah. You know, a lot of people are
1: familiar with the uh, the Check 40 uh, Fat Tire Festival in the fall up in Wisconsin. Uh, the Check 100 happens in the spring, not associated uh, at all as far as I know. And, uh, it's a little bit lesser known of a race, but I'm told it's a, I'm told it's a really good one. Uh, I'm told it's a pretty tough race. And, uh, it, it's the same weekend as Lumberjack, which, you know, is, is actually quite a distance of a drive because you got to drive around Lake Michigan to get to the Lumberjack over there in Michigan. Right. Uh, but it is a draw from the Midwest. And, uh, it's the weekend before the Luton 99er, which is another big draw. Hundred mile race out here in the Midwest in Minnesota uh, that I'll, we'll talk about later. But uh, Matt,
2: for the do you, the find, do you one- find any of those guys do both races back to back, or pretty much not really? Um, you
1: know, I bet if I went through it, I think I probably saw some names. There's always somebody. I know there was a oh geez, there was a guy in the sixty to sixty nine age group for the Lutz, and then had done the Lumberjack the weekend before.
2: You know, oh, wow. So, uh, the, so the lumberjack even piles into that grouping, too. So, wow, that's three. Races yeah, it does. In a row.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because the lumberjack is, you know, it's north, uh, northwest Michigan. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's a completely drivable get to race, you know. The, the Lutzen's the one that's actually the furthest out of the way because it's up on the North Shore. I mean, it's only an hour from Canada. So, but, um, But yeah, the, uh, I I think it was either a 250 cap or 350 cap. And there's two races. There's a short and long race at the, the, uh, the check 100. But, uh, there's a lot of good riding out there too, some great trails. And, uh, but anyways, the, uh, there was, uh, there was a few, uh, uh, leaders got missing turns and whatnot. But you basically had Dominic Tallerco and Brendan Moore, uh, lead out the gravel real early, but then they missed a turn. Uh, that went into some new unfamiliar single track, uh, after they got turned around, they ended up going into the woods around 10th place, but then they worked their way back up to the lead after about 10 minutes. Um, they ended up out front alone again, missed another turn, costing them another 10, 15 minutes, took them another 15 minutes to work their way, you know, all the way back up through traffic again to get out front. Um. Brendan Moore had to pull back a little bit after some back issues and then was ready to pull the plug at OO, but soft-pedaled on. Dominant Tolerico took another wrong turn near OO that put Moore out in front of him. Tolerico got back on course, caught back up with Moore at uh, Makwa Trail. Moore was still fighting a little bit of the back issues, but he was getting better, and he hung on to Tolerico's wheel till the uh, turnaround point. Moore grabbed some water refills at Mosquito Brook Road. His back issues were subsiding and he was able to reel Tolerico back in on the gravel, heading back towards OO. Mike Pfeiffer was in chase, and actually only a few minutes back at this point, Moore was pulling on Sealy Pass when cramps started to settle in and then told Tolerico to go on by. Tolerico had some legs uh, left and ripped through the Sealy Pass. Moore started feeling the good again on the old-school single track of Ojibwa, but it was too late to catch back on to Tolerico. Dominic Tolerico of Foundry Cycles Took the win in six hours and 59 minutes. Brandon Moore from Wolftooth Components finished second in seven hours and six minutes. And Mike Pfeiffer, also of Wolftooth Components, finished third in seven hours and 22 minutes.
2: Sweet. Um, sounds like, again, um, a lot of that Michigan racing, man, is fast. So fast. Yes. <laughs> I mean,
1: these guys took a Took took some wrong turns and still finished under seven. And I it's,
0: know. It man, it's so fast.
1: And I've I've been told too that it's that it's a pretty tough course, you know, that it's not easy ride. And I've ridden some of the like the Rock Creek loop. I think it's Rock Lake or Rock Creek loop out there. It's it's one yeah. of the Amba Epic loops and it's it's a little rugged, you know. I mean it's there's some rocks and roots and it's it's not like you're you're not you're not flying through there. So okay. I mean, he's, I, I'm, I don't know the course that's out there, but like I said, I'm told it's, it's a, it's a tough race. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So.
0: Yeah.
2: All right. Off to the, can you hear that thunder in the background? A little bit. It's, okay. uh, it's yeah. awesome. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> it's, it's not my stomach. <laughs> you hungry, Mark? Yeah. I actually am. Across the ocean now at the UCI World Championships for Mountain Biking in the Marathon Distance. Course was a single loop for the men, 90 kilometers with over 3,100 meters of climbing in the French Alps, headquartered in the town of Lesac, France. For the women elite, they would continue to race just a slightly shorter distance, 70 kilometers with over 2,500 meters of climbing course was truly marked by either up or down portions and rewarded the fit climber who could descend technical terrain. Largest climb on the course came just 15 kilometers from the finish climbing 400 meters before dropping back into the town known more for its winter ski industry which likely illustrates the course elevations fairly well. The men's race started hard and fast indeed including a climb that pitched upward uh, just one mile into the race. Sure enough, it was here that the first selection was made by the time the riders had reached that first checkpoint with seven riders together and a shattered field behind. In those seven riders, Paez, Ferreira, Cojave, Heineck, Kleinhans, Thomas, and U.S. standout Howard Grotz. Chasing over the top but down by nearly a minute, was defending world champion Albin Lakata, who would later admit to getting passively sucked into a slower pace, a much less aggressive pace, by the second group of riders on the course and realized his mistake halfway up the climb with growing gaps in the time checks. He eventually would set off to reduce that deficit by the first checkpoint and had brought it back to a much more reasonable gap by the top of that climb. The race continued with just five out in front remaining together, having dropped Klein, Hines, and Thomas through attrition in a flurry of accelerations that put the marathon pace looking more like the pace of a World Cup XC race. The top five continued as Grotz, Heineck, Paez, Ferreira, and Cojave. Behind, Lakata was still riding solo and well behind after three major climbs put him nearly four minutes down to the leader's through the last tech zones, and onto that last penultimate climb that had attacks starting from the bottom in earnest. Inside that top five, lots of motion. Soon, Lakata was amongst the lead group riders as they fell off the pace of Ferreira, who had shown to be the most dominant rider in that front group and had moved on up the trail on his own. Lakata was passing them like they were standing still, but many questioned whether he had left it too late passing a struggling Graz first, then all the others except for one. By the top, he had only one minute back of Ferreira and was moving noticeably faster by a small group of fans gathered at the peak of that climb. Fans waited at the finish to see how it would all work out, and out of the last corner, it was Spain's Diego Ferreira winning the world championships in four hours, one minute and 57 seconds, with Austria's Albin Lakata unfortunately getting close enough to see Diego's victory celebration, finishing just 19 seconds down. In third place, Germany's uh, Christian Heineck would f- complete the top three podium, finishing less than a minute after that winner. In other race placings, Howard Groth would finish eventually ninth place, four minutes down, having spent the majority of the race through nearly 80 kilometers in that front championship lead group. Jeremiah Bishop would finish in 23rd 13 minutes back, and Todd Wells would finish the day in 48th. In the women's race, again, a definitive selection was made on that initial climb. Tech descent, then climb again, that brought the riders to aid station number one just about an hour or so into the race. But unlike the men's race, this was a selection of one. Through checkpoint number one solo was World Cup standout Yolanda Neff, who had been on a tear this year in the classic World Cup distances, regularly mis- mixing it up over the past 12 months at the very top of the World Cup standings. Chasing in a group of three behind Neff was Annika Longvad, Ariane Kleinhaus, and Sally Bingham, down nearly a minute and a half to the leader through aid station number two, and Neff remained in front, but Longvad was moving noticeably faster and had brought the gap down to under 40 seconds. Bingham had moved into a firm third place another minute back. Kleinhans had been dropped further down the order, with Eno and Fumagalli having picked their way around her on a technical climb near the halfway point of the race. As the race continued, Neff settled into a pace just fast enough to keep her established in front and out of sight on a rolling course. As the race neared the halfway mark and through the third checkpoint, Longvod rode off course, and her day was done once she recognized her mistake and the distances back onto the course to make up for it. Back up front, Neff continued to grow her lead out to over one and a half minutes through the final aid station in Tech Zone as the course climbed that penultimate climb. It was through this last section that confusion reigned as the men's race rejoined the women's race on course and Neff believed she had been passed by a rider and put her back in second place. Actual second place on course, Bingham continued to ride a very steady and fast tempo that kept her well in front of a small chase group behind and her gap to the World Cup superstars, Neff, more than a little bit reasonable. At the line, Yolanda Neff would cross the line first and had to be reassured several times that she had indeed won the race despite her doubts. Second place to Sally Bingham, just two and a half minutes down. And third place to Sabrina Eno, another three minutes back. The uh, It'd be awesome to go over there and ride. I've always wanted to go over. They have, um, they have races over there that... It, exceed the production and the number of racers, um, that Leadville has. And they race in the Alps and they're actually much longer. They're, they're races that are, you know, over, um, 200 kilometers and some of them are really, really well attended. Um, and I would love to go out there, go out there and do it. They, they race very similar to what the NUE does. uh, but they, the race of the pros race with the, um, the general, you know, athletes weekend warrior kind of things, but they, they actually let the pros actually get a hundred yard lead. They actually stage them in a, in a separate corral, so to speak. Um, but okay. I would love to go over there and do some of those races. I mean, absolutely amazing, you know, terrain and views and oh, you know, yeah. these iconic, you know, passes and stuff that you're racing on a mountain bike. You're not even racing on the roads. You're just racing up these, you know, you know, sheep paths and things like that. I think, I think it'd be. Unbelievable! I would just love to go there. I don't even have to go over there and race. I would just love to be able to go over there and do, <laughs> do some riding. So, but yeah, uh, yeah, uh,
1: it'd it be. Uh, I don't know. But all these races just kind of brings on new experiences. So it'd be yeah. it'd be cool to go over there and uh, experience another another place to ride. Yeah,
2: yeah. So. At the Lumberjack One Hundred, this race always turns out to be the fastest race on the Nue circuit, taking place in Manistee National Forest and a local ski resort just outside of the town of Wellston, Michigan. A course that is made up of three laps of a 33 or so mile loop gains about 3,000 feet per lap for a total of just over 9,000 feet. Rolling fast single track with a couple gut check climbs thrown in to frustrate riders is the majority of the course with an estimated 30 miles of the 33 mile laps being single-track or double-track trails and dirt roads. Aid stations are situated at the 17-mile mark, or approximately halfway through each lap, and near the start-finish line on every lap. However, only the one located at the start-finish line is able to be utilized by racers for personal drop-bag-type items. Now, this setup has led to a few tactical decisions in the past and moves in past years where... Riders without support crews were put at a distinct disadvantage due to pit times on a very fast course where seconds could drop riders from a very fast-moving group. The race is put on by Rick Plight and the enormous army of volunteers he has there and make this one of the best run events on the National Ultra Endurance Circuit. In the field, with Dylan Johnson not in attendance and actually racing the Bailey Hundo on the same day out west in Colorado... Brian Schwarm was on hand to repeat his 2015 win and put some pressure at the top of the NUE standings should he win the event. Also in attendance, Mike Simonson, Scott Quaring, John Robal, Mary Chandler, Anthony Grinnell, fast Canadians who are making the short trip to go south of the border before Trump builds a wall next year, and a huge gamut of fast-moving locals who race these trails frequently, looking to show the out-of-towners how fast fast really is. Also not on hand was trans speeder curious Gordon Wadsworth, who continues to experiment with geared and single-speeder elite racing, but who is out with a percussive skull bongo following a violent misadventure with a gap jump on a recent training ride. It left him with a literal dirt nap for several minutes and a concussion of sorts, plus a broken frame. In the men's race, from the short start section, with a bit of pavement from past years now removed and the less distance for riders to situate themselves, plenty of acceleration sorted the field out quickly. And as the racers came through the pit area and onto the first lap of the day, it was apparent who the players were. Though there were some unknowns in the mix, in that top 10, many were left guessing at who would, of those would be pretenders and how many of those upstarts would actually be underdogs. The front group included Schwarm, the Psy Monster, Quiring, Vanius, Rubal, Gross, and Golas, plus three or four unknowns mixed, including a domestic road to, pro or two to kind of spice things up. Dan Yankis led the group back through the start-finish line after lap one, with a group in tow that seemingly seemed unchanged from the elite Midwest board meeting that had been brought to order in the early miles of this race. The first eight-stop went as predicted, with a small number of riders taking adv- advantage of hand-ups and others having to refill bottles at full stops near coolers without support personnel. Now, this disparity may have set off Simonster who had stopped and was put on the back foot while he chased back to that group. He immediately went to the front to perhaps issue some payback in the form of accelerations and attacks, and he began trading blows with Yankus and Quirring at the front of the group. Soon, the group passed through the neutral aid station at mile 50, halfway through the race, and the group was noticeably smaller, with Simonson having suffered a flat, Querin Rubal, snapping the elastic behind, and getting dropped on the climbs that present through the middle of the course, perhaps due to their shenanigans at the beginning of the lap. As the group passed through the finish at lap number two, it was now down to just four, with Vanius, Schwarm, Lankus, and White, up nearly a minute on Gross and Catlin chasing behind. Steady riding through the first half of the course before Schwarm recognized his need to separate himself from a domestic road pro in the form of Brad White, who races for United Healthcare Pro Cycling, as well as OAM teammates Vanius and Lankus prior to the final gravel that leads to the finish. He dropped the hammer on the twisty single track to open up a gap and he never looked back. Brian Schwarm of Think Green wins the 2016 Lumberjack 100 in a time of 6 hours, 30 minutes and 10 seconds, with Alex Vanias of Team OAM Now finishing less than 4 minutes back. Brad White of United Healthcare Pro Cycling finished 3rd, another minute further back, and 4th place to Team OAM Now's Yankus in 6 hours, 39 minutes, with Griggs Orthopedics. Stuart Gross finishing less than a minute back at just over 6 hours and 40 minutes. In the women's field, it was defending champion Mary Chandler who led an upstart in the form of Caitlin Patterson out onto the first lap. But it would be Chase Edwards who would challenge Patterson throughout the first lap, and the two would trade positions for the majority of that lap before Patterson would finally gain an advantage just prior to the gravel road section that ends each lap. Caitlin Patterson of OAM Now Racing would put about a minute or so of damage into Flagstaff Bikes uh, Edwards on every lap that had her winning the event in seven hours, 27 minutes, and 27 sections, just two and a half minutes ahead in an event where the race remained within two minutes between the top two women for almost its entirety. In third place, defending champion Mary Chandler of Team Adventure Medical Kits would finish a distant third, but be still very respectable sub-eight-hour time of 7.51 to take third place. Fourth and fifth places would go to Megan Dorr and Dory Lieb, respectively, both in times just over eight hours. In the single-speed race, it was Jim Litzinger of Napoleon Elite Racing who went wire-to-wire in winning in 7 hours and 13 minutes and 13 seconds. Now, I had mentioned just an episode or two ago, I was surprised to see Jim Litzinger winning the shorter Mohican 100K, as he seems to have the single-speed pedigree to be racing the longer stuff, too. And here he is racing the longest distance in the single speed category, and winning it. Litzinger was first through the banners to head on to the course and never looked back, gaining a few minutes per lap over his closest competition in the form of Alexander Steinhoff Arnott of Tree Fort Bicycles, who would claim second place. Third place in the single speed field went the Founders Racing Mike Bernhardt, who had been second place rider on course for the better part of the first half of the race. He would finish just 20 seconds down on Arnott. Fourth place went to Joseph Stroh, and fifth place to Todd Ace. In the Masters race, it was another wire-to-wire finish, this time in the form of newly crowned USAC Masters 50-plus National Marathon Champion Jeff Clayton, who put over 10 minutes onto the rest of the 50-plus field in the first lap alone and would roll in 14th overall in a definitive win in the division in a time of just over seven hours, racing for the Georgia Neurosurgical Institute. Behind him, in a close-fought race between Terry Blanchett and Mark Donikowski, worked out in Blanchett's favor. Racing for North American Velo, and he finished 40 minutes down on Clayton, but six minutes up on Gracing Rayhounds Donikowski, with well over half of the second to third place deficit coming in that last lap alone. Fourth place to Dennis Schuler, also going sub eight hours, and fifth place to Jeff Dore. That's how it went down. Fast, fast racing. Um, and yeah. an impressive dominance, especially in the single speed and um, masters races, uh, Jeff, Jeff Clayton, Glade is rolling yeah, 40 minutes. Yeah. That's just, um, and, you know, in 14th overall, um, against, you know, some, a pack that included domestic road pros, um, uh, Brian Schwarm's no slouch, at least not in my opinion. <laughs> um, yeah. is fast, uh, fast, fast, fast. And you know, um, you know, sometimes, especially on these faster courses with a fast start like that, um an older guy may have a little bit of a disadvantage to get that that spring to launch himself into that top group um but obviously recovering pretty well and doing very well on the rest of the course um you know just just over seven hours on a, on a hundred mile courses um that's that's pretty significant um effort. yeah so.
1: that uh Jeff Dora, the guy that took fifth in the uh the masters yeah He's in his sixties. He did the Lutzen the next weekend and was wow. like placed 36th overall at Lutzen. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So Just it's, the next weekend.
2: So. so speaking of Lutzen, how did that go down?
1: Yeah. Yeah. There was, uh, I was at Lutzen myself. I, uh, it was actually my, my dad's first hundred mile race. I rode alongside him, which was pretty awesome experience that I, I can put a link to my, uh, race report in the show notes, but the, uh, Talking about the uh, the guns at the front, Jordan Wakeley made the trip out there for the Lutzen and uh, had, the uh, of course, a favorite. Jeff Hall was back, and uh, it was pretty cool. I got to actually see them go by out in a loop section of the course, but those that aren't familiar with it, it's up on uh, the Lake Superior's North Shore, uh, like 45 minutes, an hour south of the Canadian border. And uh it's it's a great weekend race. I've been up there the last three years now. And it starts off with a a road descent out of the resort, up the highway a couple of miles, and then a big climb somewhere in the eleven hundred feet up a paved road though, uh that leads out before you start hitting uh ATV trails. Uh there's a lot of gravel. Uh but the ATV trails and the wheel trails, some of them are there's some sections that are pretty bumpy. It was Really wet this year. okay. Uh, much wetter than last year, which is amazing that uh, some of the times that were laid down this year. Because uh, last year was considered to be really, really fast. But uh, Jordan Wakeley went out on an attack real early up that first big climb. Actually had uh, almost a minute gap at the top of the big climb. And pretty much started blowing apart the uh, the front lead pack. There was a small chase group behind him, uh, with Jeff Hall, Matt Acker, Joe Pond, Mason Baxo, that, uh, with a couple other racers that, uh, they had a gap of their own on the rest of the field. And Jeff Hall eventually went on an attack. He bridged that gap, caught Wakely about 40 minutes in and the two raced wheel to wheel on the gravel leading into the first aid station, uh, Wakely and Hall, they worked the gravel together. Wakely put in a few minor attacks, uh, didn't really fully commit on any of those, uh, and the still the two were still together. Uh, I actually saw these guys come by my dad and I when we were on one of the gravel sections, and they would have been about fifty miles in and they were they were on the hammer. Hall was had lead wheel at the moment, and uh, meanwhile, the chase group, Matt Acker, Mason Baxo, and Joe Pond, they were starting to break apart. Acker came uh, by me actually on his lead lap. Uh, he was solo at the time, chasing, but there was a pretty big gap. And then Mason Baxo came by shortly behind Acker Joe pond and another racer. They were still in chase on the gravel, uh, headed into the 60 mile mark, uh, Glenn Margolf, who's racing the 69 and one of the, one of our listeners, he saw Wakeley and Hall come by at the 72 mile mark. So Wakeley was out front looking almost effortless while Hall was trying to stay on his wheel. Uh, those two had like a four mile gap before Matt Acker came through, who was still solo, uh, Wakeley and Hall hit the final climb together. Wakeley put in a closing attack, dropped Hall on the final steep grade to the finish, with Jordan Wakeley of Cannondale and M22 Cycles taking the win with an impressive time of 5 hours, 38 minutes, and 24 seconds, with Jeff Hall of Lemire Cycles taking second right behind him in 5 hours, 38 minutes, and 42 seconds, and Matt Acker of Grand Rapids Bicycles taking third in 5 hours, 48 minutes, and nine seconds.
2: That's just five and a it's, half hours. It was wet too.
1: I mean, there was when Hall and Wakely came by on their lead lap on the gravel, it was, I mean, it was, it, we got poured on out there. I saw some pretty awesome lightning strikes and, and, uh, last year, Tilford was like five thirty three or something like that. Mm-hmm. And that was, I'm like, Tilford blew it up last year with his time. And this year, should have been, should have been slower. And uh, I mean, Wakely, he was a machine out there,
2: and of course Jeff Hall, right there with him. So this is just, that's just like some, some really, I mean, just almost unfathomable times when you know, I if I go out for a hundred mile road ride by yeah. myself, and I can do it in. Five and a half hours. I'm very pleased with how my day went. Oh yeah, <laughs> very yeah. pleased. Yeah, um, yeah. and here, here they are, off road mountain bike. Yeah, yep. And yeah, and there's like,
1: I don't know. I've heard them say maybe seven thousand feet of climbing. My Garmin usually comes out five thousand something for the course. Uh But like I said, I mean, there is a lot of gravel, but there is some of the ATV trails are are a little rugged. I mean, are they're not technical, but they're bumpy. You know, and right. there's some and they they'll make you work there's some areas that are a little soft uh little little energy sucking after the rain came down it was real real sloppy i swore that i uh my real my rear wheel for every you know four turns of traction it had a complete turn of slippage right uh in the second lap in the back in the loop section but um uh, yeah it's good times
2: sweet um those i mean that it, uh, that's one race that I want to get up and do. I mean, there's so many that you want to do, but I mean, <laughs> like, Lutzen, Lutzen, has just has the reputation as just a very well run event. It's very, it's
1: It's a, it's a really yeah. well run event. So, yeah.
2: um, headed out West now to the Carson city off road. Of course, Carson city off road is race number three in the Epic rides off road series. It's the final race to determine the series winner with a uh, 10,000 prize purse for men and women for winning that series title um, and as is always the case with uh, the epic rides off-road series uh, the pro fat tire crit takes place on friday followed by amateur and age group racing on saturday and then pro elite racing on sunday for the men and women um, this is the first year of the carson city event in this growing series it's a series that promises to likely grow again in 2017 additional towns or venues being added and is the richest prize purse in off-road racing worldwide Um, the race series is actually a little bit of a stage race in that the placings really don't matter that much. It's the time deficits that determine the overall series winner. And coming into this race, Rose Grant had over a 16 minute lead, which seems ridiculous, but surely a flat or mechanical on some of these very remote courses could flip that onto its ear. Now, Todd Wells in comparison who was leading the men's field only had a 43 second advantage coming into this. And he'd been trading Wins with Ben Sontag, who had won the first, Ben Todd Wells had won the second, and those guys were going back and forth in the series lead. With Carson City's course lying almost entirely above 7,000 feet and a portion of the course at over 9,000 feet, several factors were going to come into play, including how these athletes were going to deal with altitude. Certainly going to play into that and the fact that Wells and his brother Had actually competed in the famous, uh, Blitz in Bend, Oregon. It's a downhill, um, enduro type race with some, a required chug of a beer at the finish line just the day before (laughs) the Friday criterium. Um, as well as Todd Wells has actually raced at the GoPro games the weekend prior in Durango. Um, in the Friday criterium, fast racing was not a, there was not a real big feature on the course to really separate the pack, and so it was going to be pack racing and um, lots of pace lining. and it was going to be determined by pure attrition. In the end, with a small group of 20 still riding near the front, Russell Finsterwald took a flyer with Jeff Kabush for a successful two-up breakaway that had Kabush winning the two-up sprint at the finish and winning the event. Jeremy Martin of Focus Bikes would claim the bunch sprint behind, followed by Sontag and Trudea to claim their call-up positions um, for Sunday's race. Now, the race course for Sunday was 50 miles in length, nearly 70% on fire roads, some fairly eroded, um, a little bit of single track and a little bit of pavement. With nearly 7,000 feet of climbing at under 50 miles, with elevations over 9,000 feet, I think many were predicted to suffer horribly. In the men's race, with a huge climb right from the start, A much more conservative pace was noted than in previous events, possibly due to the elevation, possibly due to a conservative pace by the heads of state in the competition for the overall, with Zontag and Wells watching each other closely. By the top of the first climb, it was still a fairly large group of nearly 15 riders with several groups of 2 to 3 within 20 seconds of the leaders. But altitude has its effects, and by the top of the second major climb, That group was now whittled down to just Sontag, Todd Wells, Jeff Kabush, and Martin, with Finsterwald and Paisel McElvey just 20 seconds back. But the bystanders had noted on the course that Kabush was not doing wells on the climbs at altitude and was frequently dangling off the back of the group before slowly dieseling his way back up as the road became less graded. Onto a section of single track and Finsterwald would make quick work of bridging back to the group and make it a, t- a solid five in the final 15 miles of the race. Kabush would move to the front of the group as a bit of descending single track emerged with Finsterwald following and immediately that duo opened up a gap. Behind Wells and Sontag tried to keep that deficit close to the front two and in the process dropped Martin on a descent where risks had to be taken. Across a short flat section to the final five-mile climb of the day, and Sontag moved ahead of Wells in an attempt to make up the 45 seconds in the series and to bridge to Kabush and Finsterwald, who were still ahead. Wells would pull back Sontag near the top as the two caught a fading Finsterwald, with Kabush nowhere in sight. Kabush, with a little bit of descending to go, bombed down To hold on for the win, Jeff Kabush of Scott Three Rocks Racing wins the Carson City off-road in 3 hours, 18 minutes, and 15 seconds. Just one minute later, Finsterwald, who had bridged back to Wells and Sontag, entered the final stretch for a 3-up sprint. Two SRAM Troy Lee Designs teammates against Cliff Bar Niners' Ben Sontag. But Sontag got the jump out of the last corner and cruised across the line in second with Wells right on his wheel and Fencerwald fourth, all finishing just a minute down on Kabush. In fifth place, it would be Focus's uh, Jeremy Martin nearly three minutes later to wrap up the top three men's podium. In the women's race, all eyes were on were not on Rose Grant the current leader, they were on someone who was attending her first Epic Rides event of the year and likely the favorite in the betting pools in the Carson City Beer Gardens on race day. Katerina Nash was making her appearance at her first Epic Rides race of the year. In the women's fat tire crit, it wasn't long before the group was strung out single file with Stan's No-Tubes Rose Grant and Katerina Nash trading pools at the front that brought the accordion well beyond its breaking point. In the end, Katerina Nash let out the sprint that Rose Grant couldn't come around, and as the two distanced the remaining five women on the front straight to the finish, and they would finish 1-2. Behind them, Margarly Grant, Nash's teammate on the Luna squad, would finish third with Olivia Dillon of Velasio and Amy Beazle of Ride Biker Alliance for fifth to get the call-up for Sunday and a starting line position. On Sunday, a conservative pace for the ladies until that definitive of the start and the top of the three women simply rode away from all the others on the first climb. Hanging with Grant and Nash was Amy Beasel, all three climbing strongly as the three climbed altitudes of over 9,000 feet onto the single track. And immediately Beasel was distanced by the pace of Nash, who had stretched the gap to Grant and was doing her bet, who was doing her best to hold on to a technically proficient Nash on the twisty and descending technical single track. Soon, all three were riding alone, and Nash was out of sight. On the final four-mile climb, Grant caught sight of Nash riding above her on the switchbacks and began to close, but wasn't enough before another technical descent put back the time that she had gained on the climb. Luna's Katarina Nash wins in three hours, 52 minutes and 50 seconds, with Rose Grant wrapping up the series with a second place for the Stan No-Tubes pivot work team, finishing just two minutes down. In third place, Amy Beasel of Ride Biker Alliance, another three minutes back. Fourth place to Jennifer Smith of Stan's No-Tubes Factory Team. And fifth place to Serena Bishop-Gordon of Live Giant Factory Team, um, wrapping up the women's top five podium. In the overall series, Todd Wells claims an additional $10,000 check for the overall, and Rose Grant claims the matching $10,000 check for the overall in the women's race. And so that's how... The Epic Ride series ended up for this year. I would expect to see Todd Sadow really uh, increasing the number of venues here in the next couple of years and we'll definitely probably see him. Midwest, please. Yes, that would be nice. Midwest. Um, rumors are more uh, Northwest, um, but as we get past the series and I give Todd some a chance to breathe a little we're gonna to get Todd on maybe uh end of August or so and see where what
0: That'd his awesome. plans are
2: for the future. Cause I think he's gonna have some uh big racing coming on. I would love to see the Midwest. I would love to see the East Coast. Um, but I think he's gotta kinda of allow this to progress organically um and make sure yeah. that these aren't one off events and something that's gonna continue um, you know, year in, year out for whatever towns are selected for these races so
1: yeah i mean they've got a good following I and mean, there's i just saw like you, know, you mentioned jeremy martin taking fifth i think yeah. he took fourth at the maybe it was the the whiskey or the grand junction one of those two yeah i mean he's coming out of quebec yeah so
2: they, yeah i mean you're seeing you're seeing a lot of the same people i mean i yep the, the longer the longer you do this um and some of them
1: are traveling some pretty good distances for it so they got to be a good yes. series
2: Yes. And, and they don't have necessarily have to be winning, but you, you, I mean, for example, from your neck of the woods, I mean, Brian Motter is, he, yep. seems to, he seems to show up everywhere and he seems to do very well everywhere he goes. Um, yep. Yeah, you, you see the same thing, you know, uh, certainly the guys inside the NUE series also do well outside the series. I'm interested to see um, Keck Baker. Um, of course, he had uh, a new baby in the spring that kind of changed the way his approach was going to be for this year. But now that he's, into the season, I think you're going to start seeing him at some of these other races, and not necessarily NUE races. I think you may see him at some of those, whether he makes four or not, or whether he races the 100K, who knows? Uh, but I think you're on also going to see him at some other races that are um, standout races in the endurance world that yeah. may not necessarily be part of the NUE. And I'm really excited to kind of see that. But uh, you, you do see the same guys doing very well. Um, I'm looking forward to see Gordon. Really get back on the track. I think he, having talked to him a week ago or so, he's going to kind of start concentrating a little more on single speed, mostly because um, if he's going to defend that title, he's got to start doing a little bit, a little bit more on. We're into the things. season now. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're well yeah. into right the season. He's got one win, um, but you know every other race he's been doing has been doing geared, hasn't had a whole lot of success. But I think you know he still loves racing single speed. He loves like like said, he's just been trying to figure out the whole geared thing. Um, but, you know, after
1: uh, doing a bunch of shock maintenance and everything, I, and just maintenance, yeah. I found myself two weeks ago about ready to turn into a fully rigid single speeder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm t- tired of messing with stuff.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's just interesting to see how these guys uh, approach their races. Um, other people that are, I'm seeing all the time. I mean, Dylan Johnson is doing, I mean, yeah, you've seen him doing very well in the NUE series, but just this past weekend, uh, finishes fifth at altitude which he doesn't live at um nor does he necessarily train at um at the firecracker 50 out in colorado and so you know there are people that that do very well on on the women's side there's always people that are doing well i mean carla williams has been racing anything and everything and doing well whether it's gravel or mountain bike or whatever you um and i think there are a lot of other women racers that that could do that um, but we don't necessarily see them because they maybe racing across traditional XC and um, more endurance-based. Uh, you know, Rose Grant, um, win does very well at... Keep hearing her name. Yeah, and she she actually just raced the World Championships this past weekend in traditional XC. And so, you you know, she's racing across different distances, awesome. too. So, and good enough to race her. And, and if I'm not mistaken, she finished top 15, top 20. So... She's definitely there, and it'll be interesting to see where she places her. Um, interestingly, I actually saw an interview with Annika Longvad, who I had always assumed to be much more, you know, who's the, who is the the newly crowned XC world champion. I had always assumed was more of a marathon person. She's won numerous times. She's won the Cape Epic you know, and the stage race thing, and she's won the UCI World Marathon Championships three times and i just assumed but she is actually more of an xc racer at heart that just seems to do really well at that but she would she prefers racing the xc and now she's having an amazing amount of success she's won the world cup she's uh you know won the world championships this year so it'll be interesting to see where this goes um and i'm really looking forward to seeing um, if the racing of the world championships this year is indicative of the way the olympics are going to go. Man, it's going to be amazing racing. It's going to be fast, tight, really fast, aggressive racing and I'm I'm really looking forward to that. So. Yeah, I'm
1: really looking forward to covering that in person.
2: Yeah, can't wait. Um <laughs> private jet will be picking us up uh 3 yeah. days before the race. Yeah. There you go. Um I'm I'm I'm, I'm already talking to Ben about how we're going to stock the mini bar for the flight over and yeah, all there the you little go. details. Um before we get into um, kind of wrapping things up, as far as the highlights go, we'll have a couple of discussion points here to go, um, let's talk a little bit about why you should be, why you should follow Mountain Bike Radio and some of the benefits that are out there. Now, these benefits are almost, a, they really are tailor-made for our listeners, the endurance mountain bike racing crowd. What kind of discounts do we have, Steve?
1: Yeah, there is, and this is, uh, this is for listeners. So there's, there's obviously, there's, uh, member discounts and and deals with, uh, uh, with certain companies, uh, specifically for members. But if you go to, you know, Mark and I talk about the endurance race calendar that's out there all the time, a new feature that's out there on it is race discounts. And they, we call them our featured races. But if you go there, check it out. We'll put a link in the show notes. In fact, if you go back through some of the old shows, the link's probably in all the show notes. Uh, however, but some races that are coming up, uh, by the time you listen to this, and this one's probably already happening, uh, but the Tatanka 100 is uh, here. It's, I mean, it's basically, by the time you listen to this, it's happening. But that was one of our featured races with a race discount. Uh, the Big Bear is coming up. Uh, and then the Wausau 24 for some 24 hour folks in, uh, Wisconsin is on that list. So if you're interested in some of those races, check it out, keep an eye on it. I think something that Mark and I will try to do here going forward is, uh, make sure we highlight those races, uh, anything coming up in the next month, whenever we record, uh, we'll bring it up, but, uh, there's, you know, been another race or so being added to that. It seems like every, uh, few weeks.
2: So keep an eye on that. Yeah, and and these ra- these races race discounts are simply for our listeners. Just go to that calendar, take a look at the calendar, and the discounts are right there. Th- there are additional discounts if you're a member. If you want to help support Mountain Bike Radio, um, and and um, send some money our way um, through like a membership program, you actually get some discounts that actually end up paying for themselves. Truly, honestly, yeah. I, mean, I wouldn't be saying that if it wasn't true. But if you're, I mean, literally, you buy. Um, a couple components that you get discounts for, or um, a couple items you get discounts for, it, it it almost instantly pays for itself. You help support Mountain Bike Radio, and then on top of that, uh, you get killer deals on some stuff. So it's re- it's really really worth it. And let's face it, as mountain bikers, we spend a ton of money on equipment. Either we're breaking it, or we always want the newest and best. But let's face it, we spend a lot of ton of time on equipment, and the stuff that we get from discounts is stuff that. Um, we all use, it's not, we're not going to have some crappy eyeglass company or something like that. I mean, literally some of the stuff that you get as a member discount includes stuff like, uh, Wolf Tooth Components is one that, um, we, we get, uh, discounts on. I mean, it is well, well worth it. Um, but check that stuff out and you can actually go on the webpage and check, you know, what kind of discounts you get and what the memberships include and all the different membership plans and programs and things like that. But it's well worth it. Investigate it because I think it will be well worth your time, and I'm not doing that to sell it. Um, I'm just, I'm just doing it. It helps support not my radio server expenses and websites and stuff like that. But yeah, it, it, it it's well worth it. It, 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 uh, it is well worth it as a listener. Um, so, um, check it out. Yeah, definitely cool. Um, you wanted to bring up a quick discussion topic. So, what was your question?
1: Yeah, and, and this was the, and maybe this is. This could probably be a whole other show, but, you know, I, I, I rode the, the lutes in here recently and, and, uh, um, and I, I went out soft at Mohican and, in a little bit, and there's always that discussion of going out fast, going out soft, whatever it is. And I, I kind of come to the conclusion, Mark, after whatever, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 hours on a bike, you're going to be hurting anyways. Right. And. I don't know that i I don't know that holding back too much at the beginning is really all that detrimental. I guess it, I'm sure there's a limit to everything. Um, I don't necessarily maybe don't have this I don't have a power meter i'm I'm looking into that because I'd like to do some some kind of my own trials and mm-hmm. testing and that kind of thing. but um I kind of feel like after seven, eight hours you're gonna suffer regardless, and I'm kind of falling in the camp of like I might as well just go out hard. If <laughs> that makes any sense? Yeah, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know if this is a good discussion topic or not. Or no, this is this is a good discussion but.
2: topic, and and actually, there is some science behind this. And um, I used to have a coach who is um, one of the senior coaches at Training Peaks, um, or Peaks Coaching Group, you know, which is kind of affiliate with Training Peaks, um, yeah. and he's under Hunter Allen and. Hunter has actually done a lot of studies on this exact topic. Um, And and I've read some
1: stuff about it too. And I just thought it'd be something
2: to bring up. Yeah. So endurance wise, they actually found, and this is especially using like elite athletes. And they had under them quite a while, one of the best elite athletes at this distance, which is Jeremiah Bishop. And so they were actually able to look at some of his files and see some of that. And they also saw many other athletes who race this discipline also. And yeah. what they found was that regardless of how fast you go out, now there, I'm sure there are limits to that, but yeah, there's going to be limiters. There are limiters, right? but you degrade after the, like in hours two, three and four, the same rate, regardless of how fast you go out. Yeah. So I, yes, I, it, yes, it's uncomfortable. Yes, it's, um, it's taxing. Yes, it hurts. But you actually degrade at the same rate as someone who doesn't go out as fast. So putting yourself in a position to be with that front group is well worth it. It makes all the difference. On a competition side. Now, if you're not on the competition side and you're doing this more from the enjoyment side of things, maybe that that might enjoy that as much. But the other thing is, is that, you know, additionally you know, a lot of their files that they're looking at are racers. Um, and if you're looking to get into this, uh, perhaps more coming from a uh, more of a weekend warrior, more of a social kind of thing, maybe that's not the approach, but from a racing perspective, they actually found that it really is not that detrimental, regardless of how fast you go out within reason, um, yeah. because you actually degrade um, power wise over the next, Two through five hours, the same rate regardless, so it's actually worth it to go out fast
1: yeah it's it's so I guess the conclusion I came to, just going back and looking at some of my rides in in races and how I went out it it's it It was more of a time constraint on when say the uh, I personally without a power meter, but felt like the power would drop or maybe the cramps would start, and I thought to myself well, heck, I'd rather be 15 miles further down the course when this starts. Right. You know what I mean? And, and yeah. that's – I just started – I started adding it up, and I, I, I love to go back and, and analyze stuff. And I, I've kind of fought off doing the power meter because I also kind of like to come at things from a, a little bit of a simplistic viewpoint. Mm-hmm. But I'm really, yeah. really interested in a power meter now because I, I'd, really, I'd really like to dive in and, and be able right. to analyze some of that because yeah. I just find it interesting.
2: You know, honestly, I, I mean, just from a personal experience thing, I find that to be completely true as far as the degrading. Yeah. Um, I have gone to races where I generally don't line up on the front because I know I'm not going to end up there. And I find it kind of feel guilty lining up with guys that are going to finish an hour and a half, two hours up on me. Yeah. Um, and so I just generally don't. Um, I know it's going to end up being me in a solo time trial, maybe using some other people on the trail, you know, to my advantage. But in general, it's going to be a solo time trial in the hours two through eight or however many hours it takes me to finish an endurance race. Um, But having lined up near the front and gotten in the front group and ridden um, at uh, the off-road assault on Mount Mitchell, which has a large section of pavement and then gravel, yes, it hurt to stay with that group but the difference it made, the advantage that I gained from that was huge and yeah. well worth the little effort it took me to put myself in that group for later on when drafting and, and speed and you're not riding the trail on your own and you're in a long train of fast guys that are taking the – you know, it just it made sense.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's just something I – just adding things up and going yeah. back through different races and how I felt and, and uh, uh, just an observation I had. I thought, was, I thought it was interesting to bring
2: up. Yeah, it's a, it's a great discussion, and and again, there are all kinds of. I was hoping you'd argue with me or something. No, <laughs> <laughs> there's all kinds of like little <laughs> fingers that can go off of this in a discussion, like, well, how do you train for that? Do you know, should you go out? And I actually had a coach that would did exactly that. I would they called them bookends, um, and it's, but what it is, you go out and you do threshold or above threshold for the first ten or fifteen minutes of your ride, and then settle into endurance pace, and then at the end of your ride you do the same thing. And so what that does is kind of simulates that big push to get into the group at the beginning of the race, you know, where everyone's trying to get to, you know, decrease yeah. the chance of being caught behind a bottleneck or get into the trail first or whatever. And then go out right. and do your, your endurance ride or your tempo ride at, you know, for the next three to four hours or however you, however long you're going out for. But it depends should, on the
1: training ride you're going but into. You want to say, want to go do that. If you're planning to do a bunch right, of that,
2: yeah, right. like hill repeats, right? Cause you know, exactly but then not get anything out of them at the end you then go back and do that same thing again trying to hit those same numbers for the last 15 to 20 minutes so that you're simulating the finish that surge at the finish it's great for road it's great for mountain bike it's simulates almost a race you know in one being able to recover after that effort without dropping you know without totally stopping as well as simulates having to um, maintain that power and increase that power at the end of a race when placings are going to make the difference. So, yeah. Yeah. So, there yeah, are there's a lot of
1: other factors, nutrition and. and oh,
2: absolutely. Yeah. Play, but, but, uh, so, yeah.
1: anyways. Yeah. So, so what's up? Uh, what's up next for you, Mark?
2: Um, I am, so I have, um, finally really just started. I've been putting in a lot of miles and I'm really just trying to get myself back in shape. I'm going to try to target some late season racing. I am not going to announce what races I'm doing because I want to make sure that I am there. You know, some, there's a different opinion on that. Maybe if you announce it, then you're forced to do it. But that's not what I want to do. I want to, not that I want to. It's a, it's a race. It's still a race. I don't want to necessarily be there. I'm doing it to enjoy it. But um, I don't want to have any pressure on it. I want to make sure I'm back to where I want to be before I'm racing. And. I've been putting it in. Yeah, exactly. And I've been putting a lot of miles in. I've been doing a lot of off-road miles and gravel riding and just having a blast and just getting having fun back on the bike again. And so that's what's going on with me. I don't necessarily have any races. I am sure I will be racing in the next four weeks or so. But likely it'll probably just be some local stuff um in the area. So, you know, a couple maybe there's um there's a six hour series here. There's some um, there's some bigger XC type stuff. I'm not sure where, where it'll lead me, but I'm a racer at heart. I want to race, but I also want to make sure that I do it right and don't get frustrated with where I'm at. And so that's where I'm at. Um, and how about you? What's up with, uh, what's up with you? Um, still healing. Yeah. Healing I up that, uh, will Fred not Stewart. be
1: at Tatanka. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, the next thing I had scheduled after that was, uh, the Matahe and, uh, that, that's probably pretty questionable. I, it's, uh, it's timing wise, I'd probably maybe be at the very point of it just being healed. Yeah. Um, and I could go out there and kind of wreck it, and I'm not going to get you know, that much training in. So we'll, we'll see. I might find some other shorter stuff to do at the end of the season here instead. And there's still the Margie Gessick out there.
2: Right. And there's also, I mean, you know, if you're looking for an event, you like that Matahe trail system. Um, about a month after the Mata Hay is this little event. Uh, what's it called? Uh, the Mata Hay 150. That's it. That's the yeah. one. Um, maybe perhaps you should consider that race.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I will get out and do that at some point. It's not going to happen this year, but right. I, I am going to do the Margie Kessick. Yeah. Uh, it's the weekend. It's the weekend after the, the, uh, the MDH 150. Okay. Um, uh, But yeah, I I was looking at some other stuff to do in August. It's maybe a little shorter and, uh, um, that I can kind of replace. Okay. Uh, so we'll, we'll see. It's kind of really up in the air by the time we, uh, record again, maybe I'll, I'll know more. I'll see how I'm feeling. So yesterday I got down and tried to do a push up. That was a terrible idea. (laughs) So,
2: well, um, everybody, thank you very much for joining us. Um, we're going to kind of close out the show here, um, Kind of a little bit longer show, but we wanted to get all these races in. There's been a ton of races going on just over the past two to three weeks. And we wanna make sure yep. And we're we're covering them all. We're we're getting all the information we need. And thank you very much for those of you who are sending us information. It's really helping out kind of just fill in the little details of stuff that's going on. I know uh Steve has got uh some emails about stuff that happened at races. Um I've received stuff yeah, that and appreciate it, that. and it really yeah, we really appreciate that as far as filling in those little details. But Um, Again, if you want to get in touch with Steve, steve at mountainbikeradio.com is his address. Mark at mountainbikeradio.com is my address. Um, Please stay in touch. Check out mountainbikeradio.com. There's lots of stuff going on over there as far as adding benefits to listeners as well as adding benefits to those of uh, you who are supporting Mountain Bike Radio as members. So thank you very much for joining us here on The Last Day Station.
0: Thanks again to Wausau24 for sponsoring this episode. Head over to wasa 24com and hurry up, people. They are giving you 15% off, but only for a few more days. You have until July 15th to type in the code JULY15 into the box at registration and uh, get yourself 15% off.